by the power of the Holy Spirit working through word and sacrament. Then we hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God. My friends, it's just that simple. It's in the divine service that he's there for you, that he delivers the forgiveness. That's where he promises forgiveness will be. Uh, And so that's why it's so important uh, to be in church. We long that God would answer the prayer when we pray, deliver us from evil. Get me out of here. Get me out of this sin-filled world. And that is Jesus Christ uh, who says, Do not count their sin against them, for my blood has paid the price for that. Now on 95.7 FM, it's Proclaiming the One with Pastor Clint Poppy and Pastor Adam Moline from Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome once again to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, along with us today is our vicar, Albert Bader. It is always a privilege to be able to come each week into your car, into your home, into your head, into your heart, and to share a few thoughts with the with regard to the readings for the upcoming Sunday. Today we're going to be looking at the readings for the second Sunday after Trinity. We're in the uh, long green season now. Our focus is on not so much the events or the major festivals in the church, but our focus is on God's Word at work in our lives, growing us in His Word and growing us in His faith. Second Sunday after Trinity... Proclaiming the one, we have lots of different parts of God's Word that we look at. We're doing this in the one-year series of Lutheran Service Book. That probably doesn't mean much to uh, too many of our hearers. But we proclaim the one and only Savior from sin, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Pastor, how are you doing today? Not too bad. Not too bad at all. Vertical, so that's always uh, better than horizontal, right? Amen. Amen. And Vicar, short timer, how are you doing? I'm doing very good. Glad to be back. I was all messed up wanting to do the first Sunday after Trinity, but I was gone on vacation last week when he did it. Did you go bear hunting like Pastor Moline? I did not. I went fishing instead. Did you uh, catch a fish at all? Oh, yeah. I oh, you are, quite a few. You already did better than uh, Pastor <laughs> Moline's bear hunting expedition. Oh, we'll save that for next year. You huh? know, I had no cell service. I was up in the mountains hiking, having fun. I I consider it a success. My first day of vacation, I get a call from my pastor going, hey, what are you doing? And then he says, why are you answering the phone? (laughs) Yeah, well, uh, Pastor Moline, you know, being away from cell service and being up with nature and, you know, loving all of this kind of stuff, that's what every unsuccessful bear hunter falls back on. So I just right. wanted I just wanted to point that <laughs> point out the glaring obvious. Uh, second Sunday after Trinity, the introit selected verses from Psalm eighteen. Psalm eighteen, Vicar, the Lord was my support in the day of my calamity. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. For you save a humble people. But the haughty eyes you bring down. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing to your name. The word of the Lord proves true. Pastor, 
Um, why is that such an important underpinning for everything that we deal with in the life of a Christian? The word of the Lord proves true. Well, there's only one place that we actually learn theology and learn about who God is. And maybe to say it more appropriately, there's one place where God reveals to sinful human beings who he is, and that is in the Word of God. Wherever the Word of God is, the Holy Spirit is attached. And so when the Word of God is proclaimed and taught in its truth and purity, God, the Holy Spirit, is pointing that person towards Christ and the forgiveness of sins one there and creating and sustaining faith. And so the Word of the Lord proves true means that uh, wherever God's Word is, uh, God is creating faith and sustaining faith through that Word. The Word, the Word, the Word. Um we have many things that we think are true. We have many things that we want to be true. And yet there is only one thing that we can guarantee is true, whether we understand it, whether we like it, whether we feel good about it or not. And that is that revealed word of God who comes from, uh, and that word comes from the word made flesh, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Correct. We've got several kind of contrasts going on throughout our uh, introit, and this is intentional. It says, the Lord was my support in the day of my calamity. He brought me into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Calamity, rescue, there's more that's coming later on. Uh, so we've got calamity and re uh, calamity. Uh, on uh, one side, he supports and rescues me on the other side. What does it mean, Pastor, that he brought me out into a broad place? Well, we're thinking here of the ancient world and the way that people thought about things. A narrow valley, a place where there's a tall mountain or wall on either side is a place where you can easily be ambushed, where your enemy might uh, jump out and attack you, and uh, there's no place to run or escape from that. And so that's exactly the sort of thing that's being talked about. Perhaps a, a good way to think about it is the um, the movie 300, uh, not giving a wholehearted Christian. Not urging Christian. us to watch <laughs> <Right>. that. <laughs> I'm not saying this is a, a Christian film or anything like that, but uh, the actual historical event that uh, is behind that film is true. Uh, the, the king of Sparta, Leonidas, really did defend Greece against a huge army of Persians uh, coming in to invade by finding a narrow place where he could fight this enemy. A broad place, on the other hand, there's no, I mean, uh, if, if you're standing in the middle of a large valley, there's no place to be jumped out upon, no place to be attacked. Uh, you can see in a long ways in every direction. We understand this here in Nebraska. Yeah. And so it's more safe in that regard because, um, because you have that open plain around you. And, and so to keep on moving on here, uh, God rescues me. Because he delighted in me. Why is it that God is protecting and guarding us here? It's because he finds delight in us. Now, Vicar, maybe you can tell us why God finds delight in us. Uh, maybe and then we'll get to that. Well, yeah, as we talked about at the beginning of this, God's word is always true. And as we 
plainly stated, God's word reveals who he is, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is for us and for our salvation. We learned especially about this last Sunday, the first Sunday of Trinity, Trinity Sunday. And um, I totally lost my train of thought there (laughs) just for a second. Oh, but God's word also truly reveals who we are. And it's a word that we don't like to hear, but it's a word of law. We are sinners. And so it kind of catches us by surprise that God finds delight in me, uh, a sinner, one through whom uh, Jesus Christ was nailed to the cross because of so that he could pay for my sin. And the reason why he takes delight in me is not because I'm so holy and perfect in and of myself, but because Jesus has died for me. His blood has covered me in the waters of my baptism, and through faith, which he has granted me by the Holy Spirit, now God thoroughly delights in me and all Christians calling us his children. You better hope your supervising pastor delights in you, because this is the time of the year when he's filling out his final report, (laughs) and uh, try to remind me, you know, otherwise it'll be Christmas time, and they won't want to certify him, and uh, just those things just kind of... I can be bought to remind you. (laughs) There you go, there you go. Uh, Pastor, there's this uh, contrast between a humble people and haughty eyes. What is uh, what's going on here with regard to? I mean, if I if I am just humble and not proud, uh, God will save me. So I'm saved by hum- my, my humility. What uh, what is God teaching us in in this particular phrase? But the haughty eyes you bring down, uh, you yeah. for you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. Thank you. Haughty, haughty is a word that we don't use very often. I mean, we it's not H-O-T-T-I-E like, uh, you know, you're such a hottie. It's actually H-A-U-G-H-T-Y. And I, don't, I don't hear either one of those words personally, so <laughs> I find... <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to comment on that. Um, haughty, the word that's used here, means arrogantly superior and disdainful. And so the idea, the contrast between haughty eyes and a humble people is what the vicar was just talking about. Uh, the reality is is that we are sinful people who have sinned against God and thought, word, and deed uh, by what we've done and by what we've left undone, by our fault, our own fault, our own most grievous fault. That's who we are. Acknowledging that is an act of humility, and it's actually an act of faith in humility uh, to say the same thing that God says about who we are, that we are sinful. That's a good confession of sin, of reality, and of faith in God. We're sinful people that he saves. There's those in the world that are not, that are haughty, that say, ah, uh, at least I'm better than this poor sinner over here. Uh, at least I'm better than that person down the pew. At least I'm not as bad as my neighbor is. And they try to self-justify it in that term. God will have none of it. All have sinned. All have fallen short. All, therefore, need to humiliate themselves in front of God and confessing their sins to be uh, forgiveness. We call that repentance. Amen. Uh, Vicar, you want to add to that? Well, I was going to say uh, there's a beautiful portrayal of this in the Gospels, I believe. It's uh, from St. Luke where you have the Pharisee that's boasting in his prayer with his eyes haughtily looking up into heaven saying, Thank you, God, that I'm not like this tax collector. And the tax collector, being a humble man, 
wouldn't even look his eyes up into heaven, but kept them low, beating on his chest, saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I think that's exactly what this is portraying as well. So uh, do you think, Pastor, that there's any chance we can bring that word, haughty, back into our uh, common vernacular? Um, No, I I think that it's a word that uh, it it might come back on its own, but it's not the kind of language that... um, that we use today, I think arrogant would be the word that we could put in its place because that is a word that we're used today. But I think the way that our language has evolved, the use of haughty will probably never come back into vogue. Um, but uh, we can talk about arrogance and self-righteousness and self-justification in its place and mean the same thing. We also have one who has uh, given us the greatest example of humility that the world has ever seen. No uh, arrogant self-righteousness in Jesus who takes on flesh and blood, who goes to Calvary's cross as our substitute, who takes the hit that we have earned and deserved. He, uh, He does this because he loves us. He dies our death. He conquers sin, death, and the grave. He rises victorious over the grave and gives it all away at the baptismal font. Forgiveness full and free. That uh, sets the tone for where we're going to go second Sunday after Trinity. This is Proclaiming the One. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back. FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. As I was thinking about our comments on haughty versus humble, that hymn came to mind, and I was able to uh, quickly find it for our bumper music today. So uh, that uh, that oldie but goodie is there, and that was my thought in uh, selecting that for our bumper music today. The gospel reading for the second Sunday after Trinity is from Luke 14, verses 15 to 24. Vicar, take it away. When one of those who reclined at table with Jesus heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. 
Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. All right, we have a celebration here, and yet things get pretty sobering at the end. Uh, Pastor, this is always uh, kind of an interesting text to preach on because it hits so close to home for so many people. And these are the kind of texts that sometimes pastors will look at and say, uh, I really don't even need to preach on this. All I have to do is read it. Uh, because the Word of God is speaking clearly to the excuse maker in all of us. It's always one of those hard ones to end to and say, this is the gospel of our Lord. I mean, it is in the gospels, but it is a a hard law-hitting text. But there is some gospel in here as well. And, uh, you know, keeping that that thought in mind of how uh, God saves the humble— but uh, the haughty eyes are brought down. Many of the times when we make excuses with regard to Christ, his word, being a member of the church, being an active member of the church, uh, receiving the means of grace on at least a fairly regular basis, uh, it's because of our arrogant, haughty attitude and that we don't need God. And uh, when we're called on it, then the the self-justification comes. But we get ahead of ourselves here. When one of those who reclined at table with Jesus heard these things, he said to him. Okay, now in uh, in Luke 14, uh, but before we get to that, Pastor, we see this we see this uh, phrase used quite often in the Gospels, and this phrase is reclined. At table, reclined at table. One of uh, one of your professors at your seminary in Fort Wayne uh, wrote a whole book. I think it was his uh, doctoral thesis, maybe, on the importance of table fellowship in yep. the Gospel of Luke. And it, it's an okay book. It's not. It's good, but it's not. You know, for your average layman, it's kind of an intellectual thing. But. Um, what are, what are we talking about here with regard to this reclining at table phrase? Yeah, um, it is kind of uh, unusual for us to hear it that way, but that's the reality of the ancient world. The ancient people did not have chairs in their dining rooms. They would have a special room, uh, and at the uh, in that special room called the triclinium, they would have a table that would be short. It wouldn't be as tall as the table like we're sitting at here in the radio station or your dining table at home. It would be about half that height. And the idea would be is that to really show you are someone, when you eat, you still recline and you are uh, relaxed. And so you're laying down there on a bunch of pillows, propping yourself up next to this short little table in the fancy triclinium dining room. And that's the way then that everybody started eating across the entire ancient world to show, you know, they're still relaxed and it's not a time of work or anything like that. And so when it says reclines at table, this is just the verb that they use the same way we say we sit down to eat. 
uh, or we eat on the go or whatever. That's the way they ate. They laid down next to a table. This particular table that we're talking about, uh, if you go back to the beginning of chapter 14, Jesus is dining at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, and they are watching him carefully, uh, dissecting everything that he's doing, uh, listening to all of his things and testing him and, and maybe even trying to trap him and get him to be in the wrong. And so um, Jesus is laying down here at a table eating with all these other Pharisees and things like that while they are testing and and pushing him on his theology and doctrine and practice. Some people may may remember kind of a silly little scene in the movie The Passion of the Christ where uh, Jesus, the carpenter, is uh, making a table or a chair or something that is kind of like the tables and chairs we would sit on today. And uh, Mary and Jesus are kind of joking back and forth, like, "Well, how does this work? You you mean you like sit in the chair?" and and they're they're kind of funning and joking around. Now we have nothing of that in Scripture, but it just shows how the customs have changed quite a bit over the years with regard to uh, do you sit, do you stand, do you lean, whatever to eat. Where where I was going with this, Pastor, and I appreciate the uh, isagogical explanation and the treatment. I think that's very good and very uh, fruitful. The point that I was uh, kind of fishing for was something different with regard to reclining at table. Vicar, under normal circumstances, who do you eat with? Family and friends. Family and friends. And so when we see this scene uh, with regard to people reclining at table, we're making an assumption. We're making an assumption that you are eating with people that you have a relationship with. And uh, I think that carries over to our Lord's Supper celebration. It carries over to, you know, uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ at worship, how we treat one another in the church and in the faith. Am I stretching that too far, or is that a legitimate use of this as well? Well, I think that that is a reflection on the very way that they they do lay down um, the triclinium, that short little table that they lay at, uh, because of the nature of laying, you have to be comfortable with the people you're eating with because you're not going to, let's just be honest here, we're not going to lean up against each other to have lunch sometime. We're going to sit up because it'd be really awkward for us to be that close to each other and maybe even physically touching while we're laying down to eat. So there is that sense of uh, to lay down and have dinner together in this way is an intimate thing. That's why I, too, brought up then at the beginning of chapter 14, the people Jesus is having this meal with are not the normal people that he probably would be laying down and reclining with to have a meal. I think... There's a certain level we can take this, and there's probably a point which we're taking it too far to talk about this idea of table fellowship, uh, especially at the detail that I think perhaps it's taken in other places. I think it's there. I think we have have the danger of taking it too far. Okay, and uh, I I think that's good, and I think that's legitimate. We have the the. Uh, I don't want think. Uh, people, I don't want people, to, our listeners, to think that we're just killing time here on the radio. In John 14, or Luke 14, beginning at verse 15, where we read, One Sabbath, when he went out, oh, wait a minute, when uh, one of those reclined at table with Jesus heard these things, he said to him, well, what things had he heard? 
Well, earlier in Luke chapter 14, I mean, there's a, there's a healing of the man on the Sabbath, but Jesus tells a parable of the wedding feast. And so we have a feast, and we have a table, and we have celebration. So we have this wedding feast here going on, and, you know, about where you sit at the highest place or the lowest place or whatever. And then when one of those who heard this particular uh, parable says, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And then Jesus tells the parable of the great banquet. And so I really think that we need to have these two parables, these two banquet scenes. I think we need to hold them in tension, and we need to hold them together to properly understand what's going on here in Luke fourteen fifteen to 24. And uh, to ask, Pastor, your thoughts on yeah, that? Yeah, we have to ask the question. So Jesus tells the parable of the banquet where the person sits at the highest point and is asked to move down is an all, all embarrassed versus uh, sitting at the bottom of there and being asked to move up. We have this guy then that responds to that by saying, oh, how blessed are all those who eat in heaven? And we have to ask the question then, who do you think is going to be eating in heaven? And I think that's where this parable is going to take us, is the question, who will actually be in heaven? And Jesus, this is where he lays down the law. It's not everybody we think it's going to be. It's not uh, something that we can judge outwardly just by appearance either. Uh, And so that's where the parable will take us. Who will be there? Uh, That is borderline profound, Pastor. That is is exactly the question. I'm usually borderline. (laughs) (laughs) That is exactly the question that we need to be asking ourselves. What is the question in the hearer's mind, what is the question in the guy who boldly made this comment's mind? Because Jesus knows. And because Jesus knows, he speaks directly to that. And he's also speaking to all those who um, proudly, haughtily think they're better than others. And, uh, you know, I've been in the church longer than you. I've been a, in the kingdom of God longer than you. My th- family founded this church, uh-huh. and they are members and always will be members. I was baptized in this church, confirmed in this church, and one day I'll be buried in this church, and I don't care what you say. Things like that. Yeah, and uh, we don't have a church cemetery here at Good Shepherd, but I know congregations that do have a church cemetery. Did you, Pastor? Two of them. Uh, when you were up in North Dakota. And uh, it just, uh, I, I never thought this way. I've never belonged to a church that had its own cemetery. But I would go and visit with someone about, you know, the fact that they're not going to church anywhere. And they would say, oh, oh, I can't go to your church because I grew up in a church seven states away, a thousand miles away, but I got to keep my membership there so I can be buried in their in their uh, cemetery. I, I've I'm had just that like, as well. I'm like, you have to be kidding me. I just cannot comprehend that kind of a thought process. And so I can see where a cemetery at a church would be a great blessing, but I could see if someone is looking to justify themselves, it would become the source of all kinds of naughtiness as well. Well, God calls us for a humble heart, and he does something about that humble heart that he calls for. 
We're going to take a break. We're looking at the gospel reading for the second Sunday after Trinity, Luke 14, 15 to 24. Don't change that dial. Proclaiming the one. We'll be right back. of God, I come, I come, from that uh, old gospel favorite, just as I am, without one plea. God calls us to a humble life, a humble existence, and he does that through the gift of his humble son, Jesus Christ, who takes on flesh and blood in his humility. He goes to the cross, he bleeds and dies, he wins forgiveness, life, and salvation for the whole world. And yet, the whole world pretty much thumbs their nose at the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, you know, you don't have to feel bad about it, folks. It is what it is. And uh, if, you're, if your heart is breaking because of that, think of God's heart, who gave up his only son. And uh, the, the, the difficulty that we have comprehending the magnitude of this gift in relationship to the response of the people that this gift is for. You've probably given a gift to somebody before and they just didn't think it was any big deal. And you know how much that you know how much that hurts. Now we gotta be careful we don't translate too many human emotions into the mind and heart of God. He's incomprehensible. And yet uh it is a very, very staggering and sobering thought. In this particular parable, the parable of the great banquet, we see in answer to the question that uh, Pastor Moline has set before us with regard to this, so who do you think is going to go to heaven? We pretty much act in our world today like everybody goes to heaven, whether you go to church or not, whether you practice your faith or not, whether you're a Christian or not, everybody pretty much goes to heaven. And Jesus tells this terrible, uh, terrible, he tells this parable And he says, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. Let's uh, let's sort this out a little bit, Pastor. And let's let's ask the question here. Let's get personal. Are you going to go to heaven? Where are you going to go when you die? When you ask people that, have you ever asked somebody that? 
Yeah, I have. It's part of the dialogue evangelism diagnostic questions. You know, if you were to die tonight, uh, would you be absolutely certain that you would go to heaven? What's the response you get mostly? I hope so. I hope so. You get I hope so, and you get, well, yeah, I'm a member of a church. Those are probably the two answers you get the most. Now, neither one of those answers talks about who. Jesus Christ. Jesus. And what's the actual way, truth, and life to get into heaven? Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Okay, so that's, I mean, we have to ask this personally because this Jesus is talking to us here today. So a man gave a great banquet and invited many. What's that? I mean, you're asking me what that means, right? Yeah, what is it? Well, that's, that's heaven is the banquet. And um, Jesus is t- teaching us here that Many are invited, and this comes about from uh, our understanding of, we've talked about this before on this show, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Who's invited to be in God's kingdom? Who does God desire to be saved? He wants everybody. He wants all the people from the United States. He wants all the people from China, from Europe, from Africa. He wants the whole world to be saved. And so all are invited, invited through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that has forgiven all of their sins, and there is a spot for everybody to be there in God's kingdom in heaven. And I think that's all carried with this particular first uh, verse of this parable. Okay. And uh, so then uh, at the time, and again we're reading from Luke 14, in verse 17, and at the time uh, for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. Is the servant, the prophets who paved the way for the Messiah, our Lord and Savior Jesus, is the servant the coming of the Messiah who is, uh, who is here right now, uh, bleeding and dying and teaching these people in uh, this particular parable? Is the servant a reference to people who are preaching and teaching the gospel today? How, how would I sort all that out, Pastor? I, th- I think it's all of those because what, <laughs> back to our intro, what is the actual thing that does the inviting? It's the word, the word, the word, the word, the word. So whoever comes with the word is the servant that is uh, doing this. And you see that in the parable. Come for everything is now ready. That's spoken by pastors. It's spoken by uh, prophets. It's spoken by Christ himself. Uh, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. By John the Baptist, by fathers and mothers to their children. Uh, this word of God, come, Christ has done everything necessary. It's ready for you to be in heaven that message is proclaimed all the time, more times than we could probably even count, actually. So whether we look at this as the prophets who faithfully pointed people to the Savior to come, or the Savior who did come, the Word made flesh, or those who are pointing people to Jesus, proclaiming the One, the Word, today, all of this is wrapped up in this inv- inv- invitation that goes out. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news uh, is Isaiah Romans chapter fi- 10, and it's Isaiah quoting 52. Isaiah. 52? Yep. Okay. Uh, 52 or 51, right around in there. Okay. And uh, <clears throat> we have this great good news of forgiveness, life, and salvation. The kingdom of God is at hand. The Messiah, flesh, God in the flesh, is standing in their midst, and you would think people would be really, really excited about that. 
wouldn't you? Vicar, uh, can you summarize what uh, what happens after this invitation goes out? The people look at the invitation and they say, boy, that does sound pretty nice. I suppose I could uh, have a nice meal there and maybe a few decent drinks, but I have all these other errands that I'd rather run instead. And so they drift off searching after the land they bought, the ox they bought, the wife they just married, any other excuse they can come up with in order to not attend the banquet that has been prepared for them. Excuses, excuses, excuses. Um, We probably know what that's like today. Um, If you have kids or grandkids that you've ever tried to encourage to go to church on Sunday morning, and uh, boy, it just feels so good to sleep in on Sunday morning. And oh, I got a tummy ache. Oh, I stayed out too late last night. Soccer practice. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. I got soccer practice. I got ho- uh, hockey Work. practice. <clears throat> I've got football practice. I've got basketball practice. I got a baseball tournament. I've got uh, ballet. I've got blah 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 all the way through, and. Uh, uh, Adults do the same thing. I've got my tea time. Um, work. I, wor- I work 70 hours this week. I'm sleeping in on Sunday. It's, it's the only day for me. And so we have all these excuses. Uh, Vicar, you grew up on a farm. Uh, it's pretty easy for a farmer to make an excuse to stay away from God's house because on the farm there's always something to be done. That's why we push the services back to 1030, right? So they can get their work done in the morning, come to church later on. Yeah, that's why we have services every Wednesday at 6.30 in the evening here because people are so busy on Sundays, and yet there's lots of elbow room on Wednesday night for our worship service. It's even why rural churches ring the bell during the praying of the Lord's Prayer so that the farmers out in the field can hear the bell and stop long enough just to pray the Lord's Prayer and then continue with their work. Yeah, so um, excuses are nothing new. And uh, there, there are lots of little analogies about excuses. Most of them I can't repeat on the radio. And so um, what does God think of these excuses? Pastor, uh, in verse, um, uh, let's see here, verse 21. Yeah, verse 21 of Luke chapter 14. What's God's response? And God's the owner. God's the one who's God, calling the yep. banquet. He's angry. Uh, his anger is kindled, and he says, well, fine, go find other people. Go invite everybody else. If these people don't want to come, they don't have to come. And uh, it's anger at at their unfaith. God has done everything necessary to earn salvation for people. He's gone to the cross to bleed, to die, and rise again so that people can receive forgiveness of sins and have the hope of eternal salvation. He comes in word and sacrament to make sure that that faith is always there in uh, in people's hearts uh, through faithful preaching, through uh, singing of hymns, uh, through baptism and the Lord's Supper. And God has even created you, if you want to go back even further, given you all that you need to support this body and life, and you can't find an hour a day for him. And so God says, if you don't want me, you don't have to have me. And that's the thing that, that's, this is the sin that people go to hell for. Um, this is the one sin 
that you can go to hell for. Every other sin has been forgiven, but if you have no time for God, no time to hear his word, no time for faith, no time to rejoice in the things he has, then God says, I have no time for you either. And and it's not that uh, skipping church is the sin you go to hell for. It's unfaith, unbelief, un, uh, unlove of God. That's the sin that people go to hell for. And uh, you understand why that is uh, such a sobering, sobering thought. So God is angry, but he doesn't vaporize the world. He doesn't reject his gospel promise. Instead, he says, I'm going to double down and we're going to we're going to take this message out to even more people. And I, I would say even it's not necessarily even more people, but it's just acknowledgement. So if you have to go check your ox, how are you going to get out there to check your ox? You have to get out on the, the Uber, road to get out Uber, there to get Uber. it, right? Uber? Yeah, Uber. maybe. Uh, if you're going to go get married to your wife and you, you have to go check her out or whatever you're going to do with her too, how do you get there? you got to go out on the road. So what's God do? He doubles down and sending the people back out into the highways and the hedges, all the places where the people are out there running away so that they might hear the word and come back and believe. God still sends out his word. Um, and so it is from a law perspective that no one is without ex- or no one has an excuse that's valid. You know, it's not like on the last day you can say, but soccer practice, it won't work. You can't say it was planting season. It won't work. If you have no faith, you he's gone after you and gone after you and gone after you, and there's no more excuses left. At the same time, the gospel part of this is um, God is always calling you. God is always giving his word to you. God is always doing everything possible to bring you to him and to his gifts and to his forgiveness. And there's no place that you can hide where he won't continue to be after you. And so there's both law and gospel in this thing that that uh, is being done in the parable. You know, something just dawned on me, Pastor. The uh, poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame, that's me. That's you. That's, that's me. That's you. That's all those who have rejected the invitation. God keeps going and going and going with his word because he wants all people to be saved. With that, uh, with that thought in mind, we're going to take a short break. This is Proclaiming the One, second Sunday after Trinity. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Bader. We're privileged to serve the saints here at Good Shepherd in Lincoln. We'd love to have you worship with us, 8.30 or 8 o'clock and 10.30 on Sunday mornings, 6.30 on Wednesday evenings. All of our services are broadcast on our radio station, KNNALP 95.7 here in Lincoln. You can download the app. 
You can check out our church website, www.thecross957.org. We've got uh, lots of programming in our archives. Uh, Pastor Moline can school you on all the different places you can go and listen to our programs with podcasts that we've uh, put those in that format as well. And so uh, check it out. We'd love to have you uh, give us some feedback as you hear God's word pointing you to the one and only Savior from sin, our Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament reading for the second Sunday after Trinity, one of the few times during the church year that we spend a little time in the book of Proverbs. And, Vicar, Proverbs 9, 1 to 10. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beast. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. That last verse there, Proverbs 9, verse 10, one of the most familiar verses in uh, Proverbs, also repeated in the book of uh, Psalms. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of, the wi- beginning of wisdom and The knowledge of the Holy One is insight. When we're talking there about the wisdom, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We're talking about faith. Yep. We're talking about faith here. Uh, this is no this is no secret. This is just kind of a unique and special way that it's talked about in some parts of God's holy word. When we get to Proverbs and especially here in the ninth chapter, there's a lot of talk about wisdom wisdom. And when you read this wisdom, wisdom has built her house, she has hewn her seven pillars, she has slaughtered her beasts, she has mixed her wine. Um, It almost seems like wisdom here is depicted as kind of a, almost a seductive kind of a force that's bringing and wooing and all this kind of stuff here. And uh, I'm I'm asking myself, well, what is this wisdom we're talking about? Who is this wisdom we're talking about? And am I getting a wrong picture for how this wisdom description is there at the beginning of Proverbs, or what's going on, Pastor? Yeah, uh, actually, here wisdom is a personification of the person of Jesus. And I know that may sound like a stretch here to start with, but consider John's gospel in the beginning. In the beginning was the word uh, talking about who? Jesus. And uh, wisdom, you know, in our world, we oftentimes think that um, wisdom is philosophy, you know, understanding how the world works. Some, Some kind of a platonic insight that floats around but isn't real. Right. In fact, philosophy has the word wisdom in there. And how do you go about all this? You, you 
all the philosophers, they just give a lot of words to try and explain the way that the world works. Well, when we talk about the word and the world and how things work, we can't help but go about Jesus. And so what is the true wisdom of the world? It's Jesus. He's the word that explains how everything works, how in his life, death, and resurrection we have eternal life, how the world came about through the speaking of word, uh, the word of God. Christ is wisdom, and so this whole discussion of this lady, wisdom, is really a discussion of Christ and all who belong to him, the church. So how do we reconcile the fact that Jesus is the Son of God and wisdom here is a female? Is that something that uh, Christians should be worried about? Is this some kind of a contradiction in Scripture? Or can this be grammatically explained in a very, very simple way? Vicar, you want to take a stab at that? I would just say that the scriptures have many ways of speaking to us to explain exactly how God has worked for us and for our salvation. And simply because he uses things like uh, the personification of wisdom as being female, well, we still kind of think that way today. Wisdom in the Greek would be Sophia, and when we hear the word Sophia, we don't think of a man, we think of a woman. Simply another way to speak about it. Same thing with uh, the Holy Spirit. Um, The Holy Spirit is a neuter noun in the original language, so it can be taken either as masculine or feminine. But this is a personification of who Jesus Christ is. He is the wisdom of God. He is the word of God. And that is clearly flushed out later on in scriptures, especially the Gospels, that he's not a woman. He's not somebody that's confused about his gender or anything like that. He is a man. He is the son of God. Yeah, we have uh, certain uh, linguistic things that happen today when, uh, you know, when you christen a boat, uh, you often refer to the boat as a she. This is just a linguistic kind of a thing that we do. And the the wisdom here being Jesus, uh, to me, it's as simple as remembering that great Advent hymn that we have, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And then in the seven verses of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, each verse is dedicated to a different title, a different picture, a different descriptor of Jesus in Scripture. And uh, verse 2 or 3 is, O Come, O Come, O Wisdom from on high. We all know that hymn, we all sing that hymn, and we don't bat an eye at the fact that Jesus is the perfect personification of wisdom. Pastor, you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I think it is just grammatical. Uh, The word Sophia, uh, wisdom, is feminine in its conjugation. And uh, so therefore, when we talk about it, we use female um, pronouns and, uh, you know, things like that. And so just like your boat example is perfect. And, and so it's not that Jesus is a woman or that we can even depict him as a woman. Uh, it's, he's definitely he, but in this particular case, the, the language requires a feminine word, and so we do that. Vicar, it talks in verse 4 of Proverbs chapter 9, Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him he lacks who lacks sense, she says, come and eat my bread and drink my wine. So we have that banquet imagery and all that kind of stuff. Uh, what is this simplicity and this lack of sense that God is talking about here in Proverbs chapter 9? 
These are the people who lack wisdom, who don't have sense enough to know uh, where they are, where they should be going, or anything like that. And apart from God and His Word, we all fall under that category. We're all simple. We're all senseless. We don't know how corrupt we are. We don't know how far we've fallen from God's grace. And so God reveals that to us in his word, saying, Come to me, you fool, so that I might save you and make you smart. That is, give you faith. Faith which trusts in Jesus Christ for life and salvation. So we're not talking about a specific IQ or how many years you've been to college or anything like that, Pastor? No, and, and interestingly, we're also not just talking about a knowledge of the doctrine. It's not just knowing what Christianity teaches uh, or having an ability to recite it. It's actually having faith, uh, and faith in Jesus is the thing that saves. And uh, so it's not that increasing in head knowledge will get you heaven. It's having um, the realization that Christ has done all these things for you, and because of what he's done, you will be in heaven, that uh, you actually will be in heaven. We have some uh, Proverbs-like advice that is uh, beginning in verse 7. And uh, it's basically 7, 8, and 9 where we have this advice with regard to the scoffer. The scoffer. Uh, Vicar, what is a scoffer? Well, when I think of a scoffer, it is somebody who wants to justify themselves. So you bring up a sin or something they're doing wrong, and they... They throw it right back in your face. Well, if I'm so bad, why do you do this, that, and the other thing? And they refuse to acknowledge their own sin. And the scoffer here uh, wants to refuse the knowledge of his own sin so much that the person that comes to reprove him, he's actually going to beat him up so he doesn't have to hear him speak those words again. We, uh, we all are scoffers at certain times. If uh, your kids tell you that, um, yeah, they, they, uh, they did do their homework and, uh, you don't have to worry about it because, uh, everything is done and, uh, they're going to go to bed on time. You, you are probably right to, uh, want to follow up on that to see if they actually, Oh yeah, sure. You did your homework. Yeah. Uh, They can prove it. They can show you. If somebody comes up to you and says, oh, the Huskers are going to be uh, Big Ten champions this year, you might say, uh, based on what? They only won four games last year, and they only won four games the year before. So what? Uh, how would you, you know, what would you base that on? And uh, you take that with, with a uh, healthy bit of skepticism. The scoffer here is the one who scoffs at God, who scoffs at his word. And, Pastor, what is God teaching us here in these verses in Proverbs chapter 9 with regard to how we deal with the person who scoffs at God's word, who scoffs at the gospel, who mocks the very nature of forgiveness, life, and salvation? Well, the person who scoffs uh, or mocks the faith, it says incurs injury. And, and I think this particular section, it reminds me of the words of Jesus. Um, 
and I think it's with, is it the parable of the talents where to the one um, who has much and has done well with it, more will be given. To the one who has none, uh, all that they have will even be taken away, which sounds kind of funny, but what's it talking about? It's talking about faith. Continual scoffing at God's word, um, continual neglect of God's word, or if we're going to use the language of the catechism, despising God's word and its teaching. When you do that, God will continue to take that faith away from you. It will be less than you had before. And uh, the place where this finally comes into question and judgment is on the last day of your life when are you going to be in heaven or hell? Continual scoffing at God's word leads to hell. Uh, Wisdom or faith uh, increases, and so that uh, what you have will be multiplied ever more until finally you're with God forever in his kingdom, and there you'll have perfect faith. And so this is the idea, I think, that this particular section, verses 7, 8, and 9, is teaching. And uh, I think that's well said, and I think that's a great way to wrap up our Proclaiming the One for today. Vicar, would you lead us in the collect, please? Let us pray. O Lord, since you never fail to help and govern those whom you nurture in your steadfast fear and love, work in us a perpetual fear and love of your holy name. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. For Pastor Moline and Vicar Bader, this is Pastor Poppy. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back again next week. Sunday morning, get up, drink your coffee, read your paper, pray for your pastor, and go to church.